about 400 B.C., representatives of the priests in Jerusalem uh, wrote what was called the Priestly Code. And instead of adding it to the end, as was done with the book of Deuteronomy, it was inserted throughout the five books in such a way as to give continuity to those five books and to make it seem as though uh, certain ideas were present from the beginning. And basically what they did was to to take the Judaism as it existed at that time, especially in regard to the temple ritual, the sacrificial ritual, which of course consisted of slaughtering thousands and thousands of animals uh, constantly, as I explained last week, and making putting references to this all the way back from the beginning to make it seem as though the sacrificial slaughtering ritual was the essence of the Jewish religion. And they succeeded very well. Um, it is existing, it has been existing, it has fooled people consistently uh, from that time down to the present. The different sources were discovered about the end of the 18th century and uh, scholars have been working on these four basic sources ever since with some variations, but still few people have really uh, put two and two together in the way that I'm uh, sharing with you now and have stated for certain that only the last of the four, the priestly code, is really uh, essentially negative. Because not only do we find the, the sacrificial ritual um, emphasized in there as though it had been given as part of the integral law of Moses, but also we find the tremendously ferocious penalties, the uh, the law presented as a you know, as an extremely heavy thing, divorce from love, which we do find, however, in the in the book of Deuteronomy, where the law is presented as coming naturally because of the love for God. So, for this reason, you see, there are different sources in the in the Torah itself. In the rest of the Old Testament, it, it's not a question of the sources being combined, but it's a question of uh, which book you might read from what angle of vision the writer of that book was writing. There are books that are very positive and there are books that are quite negative. And depending on where your attention is, uh, well, then you can get you can get either a very a ferociously, I would say, vindictive, unpleasant, and frightening God, a very negative Kal figure, death God par excellence, or we can have the loving God the Father whom Jesus spoke of, whom he derived. I mean, his, his scriptural understanding, I'm not now speaking of inner understanding, but the framework out of which he spoke was taken entirely from the Old Testament, but not from every part of it indiscriminately. The Essenes understood this very well, and the reason they understood it is because they were the heirs of the prophets who not only had made efforts to... to uh, comment to show the spiritual value in the Torah, but also in their own books had um, absolutely contradicted the basic uh, uh, point of view of the priestly code, which I will show as we get there. So, I want to just share a few brief passages. First of all, some of the more spiritual passages in the Torah itself some of the more significantly spiritual passages. 
in regard to Moses. Now Moses uh, is considered in the spiritual tradition, especially down through the Sufis. He is recognized as a genuine master, although one who uh, was prone to making mistakes. This is sometimes disconcerting to those of us brought up on the Bible. And yet, in the Bible itself, the story of Moses, something he did was wrong because he was not allowed to go into the promised land. And uh, as in the story as we have written, it has to do with his striking the rock, apparently arrogating to himself some glory, which does not seem plausible because throughout most of the books, he is presented as a very uh, humble person. Nonetheless, that something was wrong. That's been in the tradition from the beginning. And I think that the Sufis have picked up on that and therefore use Moses as the prototype of the holy man who uh, perhaps has not achieved full perfection, is on the way, and uh, therefore can make and does make mistakes, although he can also be forgiven and taken further up. But there is no question that uh, what Moses gave out to the children of Israel um, at this time, which would be, traditionally speaking, is usually dated about 1500 B.C., give or take a few hundred years, uh, was based on a very strong inner spiritual experiences that he had. Master Kapal is often referred to Moses receiving the commandments in thunder and flame, and that's true. But this passage to me right after the Ten Commandments were given from the book of Exodus. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand. Also they saw God, and did eat and drink. I think did eat and drink of God is definitely implied. And that passage has always moved me very much. Although it's brief, uh, it is very beautiful. Also, in the book of Leviticus, which is mostly written by the priestly code, uh, and which is mostly concerned with animal sacrifice, which animals it's okay to eat, which is not, things of that sort. Um, contains a, a few chapters toward the end of the book which are much older than the priestly code and that's called the holiness code or the law of holiness. And suddenly we're in a different world. And this includes again some of the things that those who are who are interested in and positively relating to the law of Moses um, instantly can grasp as coming again from an understanding of love. Here, love toward one's neighbor. And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. 
I am the Lord. This emphasis on the name, also in the Ten Commandments, as we know, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Of course, exoterically speaking, the name refers to the personal name of God, which is translated in the King James Version as Lord, and is usually rendered into English as Jehovah. In Hebrew, it is just four letters, roughly speaking, Y-H-V-H, and is called the Tetragrammaton, or the four-lettered name. And that is considered to be the holiest and most sacred name never pronounced. And it does not take uh, a tremendous leap of the imagination to uh, having some understanding of what the word name means in other religious traditions of equal antiquity to realize that we have here a symbol uh, that the outer spoken name stands for the real name of God, the name with which God names himself, that is to say the sound current or the word, and that when we, the commandment to not take it in vain, that is to say to not, how can I put it, to not treat it less than it deserves. In other words, to, to listen to the sound current and give it all of ourselves, to treat it with the kind of respect that something so tremendously great and holy deserves. But this is the true meaning of the commandment. And other references to the name throughout can be understood in this way. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. In other words, if you take a day's work from somebody, your neighbor, not your employee, notice, but your neighbor who happens to be working for you, in other words, there is no classification of employer and employee, then you pay him that day because God knows what might happen um, before you get around to giving him his money. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God. I am the Lord. Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Here the word judge does not mean in the same sense in which Jesus told us not to judge, but it means you deal fairly with people without considering how important they are or how unimportant they are. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against thy, the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And that, of course, is the source of the quote which Jesus gave, which people often assume that he made up, but which is simply not true. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Coming right after this, the commandment, thou shalt not avenge, is a deliberate contradiction of the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which is also part of the law of Moses and which most people zero in on when they are thinking in those terms. So both are there. But my point is some come from the true Father and some do not. And as Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And this consciousness, what we call social consciousness, 
this recognition that love for God implies love of our neighbor and has to express itself in love of our neighbor or it's meaningless is obviously part of the highest spiritual teaching and always has been. And we find it in the prophets also. Now there's a very interesting story regarding Moses in the book of Numbers which is part of a longer story which for clarity's sake I will simply um, select from only in order to make the particular point that I want to make. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? This is Moses talking to God now. Have I begotten them that thou should say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto the fathers? I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud, and spake unto him, and took of the spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that, when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. And they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. In other words, they were not with the others. They were not supposed to be speaking part of the legitimate group. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That, of course, is the source of the... Um, Blake quoted this a great deal, including section that was used in our play as a, as a summing up of the attitude of every true prophet. Would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. And Moses himself um, greatly preferred the more prophets the better. I once heard Master Kapal Singh speaking uh, when I was in India with Judith the first time in 1965. Um, we could hear easily what went on in the room the next two hours. The door didn't close all the way to the top. And the master was in there one day speaking to someone and he said very clearly, I want you to be a Buddha, not a Buddhist. And the same principle applies. Prophets, by the way, the word prophet, originally, as will be clear from some of the other selections, 
The word prophet means originally God-intoxicated person. It applied to women as well as to men. There are many women prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. And uh, basically they were known for uh, what Master Kripal always referred to as God-intoxication. The same type as uh, Mastanas often give. They would sometimes, they would go into trances. They were sometimes um, feared by ordinary people. Later on, in a later stage, they were looked down upon. And about that time, of course, they stopped coming. But no one knows much about them, but they were, as we will see, regular schools. And each prophet had disciples. And they were called the sons of the prophets. And there's a very great uh, indication throughout that these people were learning how, in a very specific way, through very specific spiritual practices, to contact God within their own selves. And that they passed on uh, mastership, or whatever we want to call it, from one generation to another, and that this continued all the way down to the uh, time of the destruction of Jerusalem. One last section from the law. Uh, again, this is from the book of Deuteronomy. And here, in the holiness code that we read, the reason for doing all those things, okay, not judging your neighbor, uh, loving your neighbor, not avenging him, saving for the poor that which you have out of your abundance and so forth, paying him what he is owed as soon as he owed it, and like that, each, each commandment was followed by the word, I am the Lord. In other words, it's because of me that you do this. This is the expression of your love for me. In other words, if you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, here it's very specifically stated. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is speaking. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. In other words, you shall remember them constantly, by one means or another. And that is the essence, in other words, of a form of simran, which was given out. In this particular section, not only was that quoted by Jesus, along with, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, as the most important of all the commandments, but to this day in Judaism, it is considered as the great commandment. This is called the Shema Yisrael, uh, and is memorized by all Jewish people. And... There, the whole ethical code is based squarely on the fact that we love God. And out of that love proceeds the impulse to do right. And this is the important, the crucial way of distinguishing between um, the positive and the negative. Is that uh, the Master says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And Kyle says, you keep my commandments, buddy, or you're going to suffer. Uh, the Master may say, may point out as a matter of realistic fact that if we, if we uh, misbehave in various ways, Kyle will indeed make us suffer. But he never threats us, threatens us personally. 
nor does he use them. His aim is to, by building on our love for him, which is based on his love for us, showing us that our own best interest lies in doing these things. When the two are separated, we have psychologically a very difficult uh, kind of rending gap. Blake's words, again used in the play, when Satan with his black bow bent, the moral law from the gospel rent. In other words, at, at that time that Blake was writing, in the 18th century, um, in the established churches of the day, especially the Church of England, which dominated England, um, this basic fact had been forgotten. And as the influence of the deist movement, uh, ethical morality was had become the main point of religion. And this was deadly, led to a very deadly kind of self-righteousness, which is which is what it does lead to. And uh, instead of not avenging our neighbor, we are interested in in uh, pulling out his eye in connection and following that part of the law. Uh, I should explain that this the confusion. Okay, of Satan with Jehovah, let us say, is not something that anyone is reading into the Bible record. It's found definitely embedded in it, as will be demonstrated by the next two things that I read. Uh, from the second book of Samuel, we have an incident of a census which was taken by King David. And it says that the anger of the Lord, that is Jehovah, was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. And in the first book of the Chronicles, the very same incident, historically it's very clear that it's the same incident, is repeated in this way. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And then the same census is given. And this has puzzled, I think, people who believe in the, in the infallibility of the Bible. Uh, this particular passage is very puzzling. It has never been, I think, explained in a very adequate way. Um, but I think it's a clear indication that some of the things that are assigned to Jehovah in fact belong to Satan, or we may say to uh, to avoid the, the picture of only the evil, ultimately evil person, but to allow room for the just uh God of time, God of death, all of the things that we have learned about Kao, mostly from the Anurag Saga, um, that some of them apply to him also. And this is this ambiguity is built right in. In other words, the people telling the different traditions and writing down the different traditions are not always sure either. Now, I want to also uh, read a section. One of the first and most famous of the prophets was Elijah, that is not their prophets have been around for some time before him. But he is one of the first of whom there is a detailed account in the Bible. And his foremost disciple was Elisha, who became his successor. And the story of how Elijah died uh, and left Elisha as his successor is very notable and a clear indication that the prophets, um, you know, were not just... Uh, well, some, some writers, you get a sense that they were basically political commentators uh, or preachers in the, in the sense of modern clergymen. And they did take on those roles to some extent, as we will see. But um, basically, they were spiritual people and they were dealing with things of which most people knew nothing. 
And it came to pass, when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as my soul, as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets, and that is the students, these would be the disciples of Elijah or the disciples of other prophets, that were at Bethel, came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? He said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went, and stood to view afar off. And they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. So a very clear record of... Uh, of the ways in which the prophets did relate to their disciples, how they um, passed on their mastership, whatever you want to call it, and how other people, the other disciples, recognized that. And also, I think of the emotional feeling. Elisha obviously loved Elijah very dearly and very loath to leave him and yet understood his essence also. Now, the remaining thing, uh, and this is perhaps the key and the most important, is the recognition that the prophets did not support 
in fact opposed the temple sacrificial ritual. In other words, their idea of what God wanted from the children of Israel was not uh, what was done in the temple every day. This is almost impossible to grasp unless we recognize the fact that the Bible is not a unity. Because whatever the prophets say, people when people read the Bible these days, they pick up, the, they start from the beginning, they read through the Torah, or the Law of Moses, and they see how page after page relates how if you do this sin, then you kill this animal. If you do that sin, you kill this animal. Uh, and the, exactly how the animal is to be killed, and what's to be done with the blood, and what's to be done with the fat, and what's to be done with the ashes, in most minute descriptions. So by the time they reach the prophets, uh, and they read things like this, this is from Isaiah, and it's just a these are just selections. There's much more like them throughout the prophetic books. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me incense that was burned while the sacrifices were going on. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood, the blood of the animals, of course. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There is love and forgiveness, but not until you stop doing something which is positively counterproductive. In other words, worshipping me the way you have been told to worship. Uh, there's another section here from the prophet Amos. Um, I hate, I despise your feast days and I will not smell means appreciate, but the reference is to the fact that in the sections of the law it says that the Lord likes the sweet smell of the burning meat. It just pleases to him. Amos says, No, I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? Now that question is asked sarcastically and rhetorically, and the answer is obviously, according to the prophet, no. But we realize that in the Bible as we now have it, which is not the way, in other words, the book that Amos read when he read the Torah, was not the book that we read because the priestly code had not been added at that time. So that his question, have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, 
O house of Israel. In other words, did you do that then when you were closest to me? Did you then have this this slaughtery ritual? Um, to him, the answer was self-evidently no. But to someone reading the Bible today, you see, they don't know what to make of this question because after reading through the first five books, it's full of references to Israel making sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness. And another from the um, prophet Micah. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This refers, according to the Bible itself, uh, the firstborn of every person, every family, was actually subject to be sacrificed. It means human baby. However, in the provision is made in the law for that firstborn to be redeemed. In other words, some animal could substitute for it and was supposed to substitute for it. Nonetheless, it may well go back to a time when it was uh, the firstborn was routinely killed in a ritual, a uh, time previous to any records that we have. And that Micah may be remembering that or he may be uh, commenting on the on the ritual as it stands, as we know it. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Again, the, the, the love of God, and expressing itself in love for the neighbor, is contrasted with the sacrificial ritual. But again, people generally do not uh, separate the two and understand the true significance of this. And in the prophet Jeremiah, who in many ways um, may be, along with Isaiah, may be one of the highest of all of the prophets in the Old Testament, um, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And in connection with that, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, again in direct contradiction to the Torah as we have it. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. And in connection with the, the New Covenant passage, because after all, when we think about it, what is there? In what sense was Israel chosen? See, when we speak of the chosen people, when we speak of, of, um, of God choosing people, 
the reference that runs through, not only in the Bible, but in many scriptures too. What on earth are we talking about? In what way can God be said to have chosen anyone? I mean, obviously, if, if God means anything at all, if there's any sense to be made out of the concept of God, it cannot mean that he loves one people more than another. So that it, it, that's that easy, superficial answer you know, cannot be the case. But obviously what is meant is that he's chosen people or a person for some purpose. In other words, to do something which has to be done. And in the prophets, the prophetic books, there are many references made, conversations between God and the prophets, in which he, against their will, again, very reminiscent of the conversation that the Master's quote between God and Guru Gobind Singh, who was a very prophetic figure, by the way, in many ways, fit easily into the into the idea of the prophet in the Bible. Um, you know, go and do my work. And they often argue, no, you know, I can't go, I'm no good. Moses did too. I'm not good enough, I can't speak well enough. You know, I, I'm scared stiff, is what they were saying. And he would say, no, you must go. I have given you power. Uh, in the same way, we can say that uh, if in any place, okay, in any part of the world, enough of the teachings are known so as to provide a base so that the masters can develop and come, even if for centuries it's more or less underground, uh, still the base is there. Some people are escaping from the cycle of births and deaths. The door remains open and it becomes possible. And uh, eventually the time comes when it can go public, you might say, and then it enters into a new dimension, a new phase which may then fail, because it is called world, and in many cases, from an outward point of view, the masters have definitely failed. Um, they have definitely uh, not been allowed to do the work that they would have liked to have done. does not mean that they failed in the ultimate sense, but from our point of view, they definitely seem to have failed. So that uh, when we speak of a chosen people, we mean, after all, in the, the Bible world is very limited, circumscribed, basically the Mediterranean Sea and its shoreboard. And within that shoreboard, only one people made any attempt whatsoever to rise above the sacrificial cult and to consider that the way to appease God is to kill someone else, uh, that that will please him and means that he won't hate you anymore. Basically, that's the, the rationale of the sacrificial cult, which at one time was found world over. Within that, within that uh, area, one people rose above that. They also were saddled with this, uh, as we've seen, but still the highest teachings are present too. And first, that was relatively public, that is, they had one public message as well as taken students and trained them. Then the whole thing went underground, more or less, as with the Essenes, and um, ultimately uh, came public again at the time of John the Baptist and of Christ, only to be put to an end, seemingly, uh, by the Roman soldiers in 70 AD. However, if... I am correct in assuming that the Gnostics and the Sufis represent a continuation of that same message, did not, of course, really end. In fact, it was unquestionably a definite organic connection 
with the masters of India because the Sufis represent a bridge between the two areas. However, uh, so in this sense, um, the children of Israel, not because of any racial superiority, but because of the fact that there were people among them who were susceptible to the higher teachings and who were able to act as doorways through which that was presented, um, were chosen for this purpose, to keep the teachings alive over a period of a thousand years or so. And they did do it. And all through, the prophets warn, there are hundreds and thousands of warnings throughout the prophetic books, that this chosenness is conditional, that they must act up to it, that the country as a whole will not survive if the purpose for their being chosen is forgotten and if they concentrate instead on the virtue, on the pleasures of it. In other words, that they are better people than others because they are chosen. The prophets emphasize this over and over again. And that is why they say, you know, that... that um, let righteousness come down as a mighty stream and uh, don't count on your sacrifices being enough and like that. And I think this is a universal message uh, that to whom much is given, much is expected. And it applies to us, I think, in several ways. Uh, in, very, in a very real sense, America is also a chosen place. And the people who live here, you could say, were brought here from all over the world. And uh, in certain ways, such as freedom of religion and so forth, we are definitely in a better position than almost any country in the history of the world has ever been to grow spiritually and to um, fulfill the various prophecies that are in the Bible. And the fact that the Masters have been coming here and spreading that here, and Baba Sawan Singh also wrote in this vein very directly, um, speaks a lot. But again... To whom much is given, much is expected. And uh, it's, as a country, it's vitally important that, that we not forget um, where, from where we have come and what is required of us. Uh, love, generosity, forgiveness, tolerance of others, not just as satsangis now I'm speaking, but as human beings. This is a real thing. And also as disciples of the Master, see, even more, and as members of any country or what, or whatever, uh, we have been given the supreme gift. We can't take it in vain. We have been given the name of God. If we fritter it away, then we are taking it in vain. And it's incumbent upon us also that, you know, we can't be complacent. We cannot let uh, the implications of that which we have been given escape us. We must live up to them. And it must be based not on fear, not on jealousy, not on anything negative, but only on love. I want to conclude with a section from the book of Isaiah, which I think is a very specific prophecy of what is happening today. And I, and I am definitely in the mainstream of biblical prophetic interpretation when I say that, because St. Paul and others interpreted, used sections from the books of the prophets to interpret what was happening in their day, just as I am taking this. Okay, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly 
and rejoice even with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of, of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, where each lay, shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That section was quoted by Master Kapal in Nama Word several times in the course of that book. And not all of it, but part of it. And uh, I'm using the title Streams in the Desert for the collection of Sanchi's Discourses, which will be published very soon. Um, and this this chapter, at least most of it, will be the motto of that book, will appear as the, in the fourth part of the book. Because I consider that um, that we have walked on that highway, and that it is for the redeemed, and this is a very, very great thing. And uh, even physically, literally, the prophecy is being fulfilled even as we live. <laughs>